not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello. And welcome to the Beyond Zero radio show. We broadcast from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and are syndicated on the Community Radio Network. You may download our podcasts from the internet at either 3cr.org.au or bze.org.au or using any common podcasting app. My name is Nils. And our co-host today is Michael. How are you, Michael? Great, thanks, Niels. And would you care to introduce today's guest? Today's guest is Nigel Morris from Solar Business Services. Mr. Morris is the Director and Principal Consultant of Solar Business Services. Nigel established Solar Business Services in 2009, building upon 20 years of experience in the solar industry. Solar Business Services is a consultancy firm, working to advance both individual firms and the wider solar industry. Mr. Morris was presented with Industry Advocacy and Leadership Award in 2011 from the Australian Solar Energy Society. Over the course of today's discussion, we're going to cover his zero motorcycles and and electric motorcycles in general, improvements to battery storage, and some upcoming exhibit and presentations by Nigel. Nigel joins us by phone today from New South Wales. We're sitting here in Melbourne, and it's a gorgeous sunny day. And he's in the middle of unprecedented storms up there. How are you, Nigel? I'm just fine, thanks, Michael. That's great. And I hear you were, broke out the solar power to get your house back online. Yeah, we did. The, uh, the batteries. The, the power's been out since early this morning. And as the day has gone on, we realised we're unlikely to get it. So I ducked into the shed and grabbed all my air batteries and 12-volt lights and inverters. And I've got enough power to get the hot water system running and get some lights and the phone's working and keep the radio on. I feel a um, surge of battery sales coming on up there. What do you think? (laughs) I I, uh, wouldn't be surprised at all. A lot of people in New South Wales have been affected, especially around Sydney, of course, and Central Coast. And there's a lot of people there with solar. And of course, sadly, uh, even though they've had the solar on the roof, with a very small number of exceptions, none of them have been able to take advantage of a bit of energy generation today because they don't have storage. So uh, I would expect to see quite a lot of inquiries over the coming weeks for people trying to see if they could insulate themselves against long-term blackouts like this using some batteries. It's a rapidly changing world. Firstly, thank you for joining us again. You've collaborated several times with the BZE and the BZE show. Uh, I know you participated in the BZE in a discussion group explaining the inevitable rise of solar in Australia, and and we appreciate that. We like to begin these interviews, thanks, with just a brief autobiography of of your journey in sustainability, how you arrived at where you're at, if you were kind enough to. For sure. The journey really started with a tomato, believe it or not, when I was 18. uh, (laughs) That's 30 years ago. I was travelling through Europe in a in a beat up old combi with a with a girlfriend as you do. We went to buy our daily supplies in a German fruit and vegetable shop one day, and we were confronted with the scene of tomatoes, believe it or not, some of which were just regular tomatoes, and others which had nuclear radiation symbols attached to them. And we eventually found someone who could speak English, and it was explained to us that they couldn't assure 
that some of the, the tomatoes that we were looking at hadn't been affected by the fallout from Chernobyl, which had gone up not long before our trip. And so they said they're, they're, they're on special, of course. They're very cheap if you'd like the radiated ones which we chose not to go for. But that was really where the journey started for me because that was the first time in my life that I'd actually thought about the implications of energy. You know, I'd always had the benefit of a privileged Australian life and been able to switch a light switch on and enjoy electricity and never really thought about where it came from before. And here I was faced with a radiated tomato. It took me a while to get into renewables, but 10, 15 years later, I got into the industry and have been in it now for 21 years doing a variety of different things. Nigel, you own a battery-powered motorcycle. I was wondering if you could list some of the advantages of a battery-powered motorcycle compared to a petrol-powered motorcycle. Well, uh, that's that's easy. So um, having owned motorbikes all my life and having just recently restored my petrol one to sell it because I don't need it anymore, the first advantage is their simplicity. Uh, There is a motor that direct drives via a belt to the rear wheel and there's a computer and there's a battery and there's some wire. The rest of the running gear is pretty much the same but uh, when I recently restored my petrol bike I counted up the bolts and the bearings and the seals and all the various different bits and pieces and by my calculation my petrol bike is somewhere around about a thousand moving parts in there. Uh, my petrol bike, uh, conversely, has about um, has about five moving parts. It has about about 40 bolts compared to about 200 from memory on the petrol-powered bike. So simplicity is is really one of the wonderful, wonderful things about it. And although I'm a, a very keen tinkerer and former mechanic, uh, I actually really enjoy riding more than I do fiddling. So I get to ride more because I'm not having to maintain it. That's number one. Of course, that leads into number two, and that is that they're extremely cheap to run because you're not paying for air filters and oil and spark plugs and various other consumable items, really, apart from brake pads and tyres and brake fluid. That's it. They're very gentle on the running gear as well because there's not pulses coming from the engine. It's a direct, smooth drive out of the engine, so the wear and tear is very low. So consequently, their their operational cost is very, very low. My previous internal combustion engine bike would take about $20, $22 to fill up a tank. My current electric bike to do about the same range costs me about $1.50. If I'm charging it off my solar system at home, which I can do, which is paid for itself, I'm effectively charging it for free. So certainly operational cost. And then Thirdly, being a keen motorcyclist and enjoying a bit of fun on, on a motorbike, whether it be on-road or off-road, one of the best things about them is they go like stink. Uh, they deliver the torque in a linear fashion that I can actually tune with my iPhone, believe it or not, so I can change the, the mode and customise it and do all sorts of different things. So, And, and my, my 160-odd kilo electric bike, Compared to my 220-odd kilo petrol-powered bike, which is 1,100 cc's, uh, my, my, my new electric bike delivers almost the same torque. It has almost the same top speed. It'll do 160. The other one will do a bit over 200. So it is immensely fun um, mm-hmm. and very, very smooth. So there's three main ones for you. <laughs> you you've sold me. Mind you, I've seen your bike, <laughs> and um, and I wanted one. I just, I'm drooling over it. What is the range of a battery-powered motorcycle? typical I guess of that kind of midway point that most people would end up with. Everyone would love to buy the top end but not everyone can afford it. So the the realistic range on mine is about 200k. Of course with electric vehicles the range is dictated by speed and gradient and wind and so forth 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if you're riding smoothly or you're driving around town or you're riding at low speed, 200 k's is very achievable. In fact, I did a, a run up the coast the other day, um, uh, just under 100 kilometres along the old Pacific Highway, which is a, a biker's dream, but it's low speed. It's 60 to 80 kilometres an hour most of the way and uh, we arrived there with just over 50% in the tank to just on just under 100k so that sort of demonstrates that a bike like mine can can quite realistically achieve about 200k's and of course with larger capacity batteries and newer models are getting better and better and more and more efficient uh, of course onboard fast chargers allow you to charge up very quickly so you know they're not a touring bike yet but certainly doing quite reasonable distances on them is, is very achievable. You mentioned there that there was a variety of costs and qualities of bikes. So how many different types of makes of battery-powered motorcycles are there? Mm. So changing rapidly, actually. Right down at the bottom end of the market, there are literally millions of electric scooters and small electric bikes in China nowadays. Mm -hmm. Literally millions of them. And they're fairly low performance, but they're very cheap. Um, they're great for just zipping around and commuting and so forth. And, you know, they typically sell for about $1,000, $2,000. Yeah. Um, I actually saw today that there's an Australian company that launched a, an electric scooter uh, called the Fonzarelli. Uh, it's, uh, I saw it was priced at about $3,000 from memory. Again, sort of low-powered, 125 cc equivalent machine. Mm-hmm. And then you jump up into the mid-range where you've got Bikes like the Zero that are, are really a fairly high performance machine. You sort of get in there at about eighteen, nineteen thousand dollars, and push up to about twenty six, twenty eight thousand dollars, depending on the performance. And then there's also a breed of hyper sports bikes that are starting to come out out of Italy and out of out of a couple of other European countries, and a great one out of the US called the Lightning that actually won Pikes Peak and holds a bunch of land speed records, and they've got a production version now. They'll cost you about $35,000, $45,000, somewhere in that region, but they perform like you know, an extremely high-performance sports bike and have an incredible power. So it really, it's, it's great because the market's opening up from you know, very low-cost, cheap, low-performance commuter vehicles uh, right through the range up to very high-performance bikes. Are battery-powered motorcycles significantly quieter than petrol-powered motorcycles? They certainly are. They're not absolutely silent, but they make very, very little noise. You, you hear tyre noise, you hear belt noise or chain if it's got a chain, and you hear a little bit of electronic noise and a little bit of whine from the motor depending on them, but they are wonderfully silent. I, I've always had fairly noisy big V-twins in the past and rejoice in the sound of a big motor doing its thing but I must admit after close to three years riding an electric now I equally rejoice in how comfortable and enjoyable it is getting to hear what's going on around me Mm -hmm. I can I can hear vehicles approaching me I can hear the wind in in my ears and Mm -hmm. and everything that's going on so I actually don't miss the noise in fact the last time I rode a petrol bike I you know between the heat and the smell and the noise and changing gears and you know rattling and feeling all this vibration I uh, it was at that point that I decided to sell my petrol bike because I, I thought this just feels so crude and antiquated yeah. compared to mine. Do these electric motorcycles beep repeatedly at low speeds to alert pedestrians? No it's an interesting point that you make because I'm aware that in some countries they do have pedestrian alerts on electric vehicles nowadays and it's certainly been some discussion and experimentation with it. In fact, I've got a, a noise generator at home that I can program with various different sounds, 
different types of motorcycles or engines or whatever and a speaker system, but I couldn't bring myself to fit it oh, my because God. I enjoy the... <laughs> Yeah. I enjoy the silence too much. You um, um, you actually preempted. Um, Kay and I had a, a marketing idea six months ago for exactly that that you could dial up your favourite engine noise, a, a nice thumper noise or whatever, and sell it to people with electric bush electric motorbikes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, someone's one step ahead of you. There. Um, <laughs> so yeah, and and interestingly, I I find when I'm riding in traffic that my philosophy after 40 odd years of riding is that no one can hear me, no one can see me and everyone wants to kill me. And if you ride everywhere like that, then that's about the safest uh, approach that you can take. Um, However, with an electric bike, I have learned to behave kind of like a cyclist when you're near pedestrians. Uh, Pedestrians won't hear a cyclist coming in the same way they won't Mm. hear an electric bike or car coming. Mm. So you have to kind of switch modes a little bit and just anticipate that pedestrians won't hear you. Um, I haven't found it a challenge, but I have startled a few pedestrians. Um, and uh, it's something that you, you adapt to. But really, it doesn't take long to get used to these kinds of things. Like any new kind of vehicle or riding experience or driving experience, you, you've got to learn to adapt. But uh, we're, we're, uh, we're adaptable creatures. And uh, at the end of the day, I think that pedestrians uh, will adapt and learn that not all vehicles make a sound and the owners and and riders and drivers of those vehicles will realise that pedestrians won't hear them coming and will adapt as time goes by. Do battery-powered motorcycles include regenerative braking and regenerative suspension? So the the answer is not all of them. Um, When you go down into the cheap end of the market, you won't get those kind of features. Or if you've got older bike, I had a previous Zero um, that was about four or five years old and it didn't have regenerative braking. But from about 2012, 2013, certainly Zero has had regeneration uh, as a standard feature. And on mine at 2014 model, it's, uh, it's quite a sophisticated function. I have regen available in two different modes. I have it uh, when I close the throttles, and effectively that feels like engine braking. And so that's actually uh, adjustable. So I can go into my iPhone and I can dial that up from zero to 100%. At 100%, it feels roughly equivalent to a you know, fairly substantial V-twin engine braking. And it's a great way to slow yourself down without having to rely on the brakes. And for a former V-twin owner, it feels very comfortable to me to feel that engine braking kicking in, but even better to know that I'm generating a bit, of, a bit of power when I do that. I also have regen on the brakes. So the first few percent of movement on the um, on the brake lever actually activates the regen as well. And again, that's fully programmable. And so what that means is that if you're, you know, going through traffic and just doing lots of gentle braking, coming up to stop lights and so forth, you can actually, you know, modulate your braking pressure and actually um, use a lot of regen to slow yourself down without actually having to activate the brakes much at all. And in fact, there are a number of guys who own Zeros who are now putting a second lever on, which is wired into that regen circuit so that you've got a brake on the right that's just your regular brake and then a brake that's on the left that is pure regen and the harder you squeeze the more it activates that regen up to 100 percent and i i think that'll be a more common feature so certainly all the high-end machines bikes and cars now have regen as a standard feature we can hear your enthusiasm for your battery-powered motorcycle and i was wondering in the wider community how popular are battery-powered motorcycles so I'll answer that in two ways. In, in terms of 
enthusiasm for the concept. Every single person I meet, every motorcyclist I meet, loves the idea. And in fact, even non-motorcyclists typically love the idea of what an electric bike will do for you, particularly when you talk to them about the performance and the ease of riding it and the low maintenance, all those great features. So across the board, everybody really can see that it is just a terrific, simple, high-performance solution that's low cost. So, you know, what's not to like? Um, in terms of, you know, sales on the ground, that's really the proof of the pudding, though. And it's very early days. The Zero bike that I own has, has kind of had patchy availability in Australia since it was first introduced back in about 2009. And last year, sales took off with a bang and uh, with a new importer and everything was going very well. And in fact, they sold out of several models and a lot of the dealers that I've talked to and worked with um, you know, just couldn't get enough of certain models and reckon they could have sold a whole lot more. And at the moment, there's a big waiting list because there's been a delay on shipments into Australia this year. But all up, by my count, I reckon there's maybe only 50 bikes on the road in Australia, most of which were sold in the last year or so. There's a few older ones around and there's a few homebrews around. But of course, with the price going down and the performance going up all the time, you know, I think the forecast, in fact, we've done some forecasting work and if there was 50 sold in the last year, I think 100 to 150 in the next 12 months would be very realistic. And uh, with our expectations and what what we know about the 2016 models that are coming, I would expect that we'll, we'll quite possibly see several hundred a year and then it'll... By 2017, 2018, as battery prices come down even more and people get more familiar with it and there's more charging infrastructure around the country, I think we'll be off and running. So we're, we're a tiny community mm. of, uh, of owners right now, but certainly enthusiastic. I am amazed it's so low, but it's um, obviously going to be a tidal wave in the very near future, isn't it? Just stepping back to that previous question on the Regen, Nigel, I actually have an electric push bike that has a little computer on it and I use Regen braking on that. And it shows me I'll typically garner about 6% savings back into the battery with my braking. Do you have a figure for the, the bikes? Does it show you how much you, you save with regen braking? It doesn't show me in cumulative percentage terms, but what I do know from data logging uh, that I've seen uh, courtesy of other owners around the world, a figure in typical sort of urban commuting riding would be somewhere around 10%. And if you're really working it hard and optimising it, maybe even up to 15%. So mm. certainly a noticeable amount. Um, what I can see is how much torque uh, or negative torque, in fact, it's throwing back through the motor. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, I, was, uh, I, I, live, I have to go up and over a little hill to go from home to my office. And uh, I happened to notice the other day that I was generating minus 55 foot-pounds of torque coming down the hill, which is a hell of a lot of torque. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of energy available there. Of course, you're not tending to do it, uh, to do it consistently, but I took a ride uh, down the south coast uh, a month or two ago, and I was very consciously, whenever I had a long downhill run, uh, I was consciously flipping between modes and activating my regen mm-hmm. um, and, and, and getting some good long duration regen happening which really helped to extend my range on that trip so uh, yeah. it's, it's a must-have it, it does make a significant difference doesn't it you're listening to the beyond zero radio show brought to you by climate change solutions think tank bze we're speaking with nigel morris in sydney about electric bikes electric batteries technology and other things nigel moving now from the uh, battery powered electric motorcycles to the battery storage with ever more attractive renewable energy sources being deployed 
and developed, and, and there is a corresponding need for energy storage in order to match the demand with dispatchable electricity. Do you envisage battery storage in the households, the substations, or, or perhaps more remote locations? Uh, not only do I envisage it, it's already starting to happen. I work with a number of companies and have done quite a lot of research on this in the last uh, six months in particular. And of course, I started out with storage 21 years ago when I was selling solar. We only ever sold off-grid solar, so every system had a battery, a battery bank in it. And then over the years, we, we concentrated more on the grid-connected uh, solutions uh, mm-hmm. without storage and and lo and behold here we are back at the storage solution again so mm, full circle I'm, oh yes yeah, full circle exactly right and and it's been fascinating because if we talk about grid supported solar uh, storage a couple of years ago based on the research i did i think there were perhaps 50 systems a year being sold in australia the, the year after that 2014 i reckon we jumped to close to a thousand systems based on research that we did and the suppliers of the different technology that we spoke to. So it is evolving at a lightning pace mm. and, and is increasing in popularity. And there are a number of really interesting triggers, the end of feed-in tariffs in New South Wales at the end of 2016, which is already stimulating sales. I, I, I saw some on social media the other day. of People were saying, we haven't just, we decided not to wait till, till the end of yep. 2016. We've already put our little storage system on. Mm. So it is starting to happen. And interestingly, when you, when you look at that market, there are actually a bunch of different markets within the storage market. So there's the, the large-scale network support solutions that you talked about, or perhaps yep. large-scale commercial storage solutions. And then you can drill down into the urban residential solution where you might try and take your house off grid for example which some people have done very small number but some people have done that and then you can go down into say into solutions where you might just minimize your or, or, or ensure that you don't export any energy and perhaps lock your demand so that you're not drawing energy during peak time for example that is the sweet spot that peak shaving in residential homes is where the market is going to go it's it's absolutely inevitable there are several reasons for that, but, but of course, the economics are the primary one. I pay 52 cents a kilowatt hour for energy between 2 p.m. and 8 p.m. And at that level, I can buy wow. a storage system today that will store energy cheaper than I have to pay for it. So the economics mm. are there for me today. Like many millions of, of Australians who have solar, whose systems have paid for themselves, I'm now effectively getting free energy out of my solar system. So if I can if I can generate it for free through a solar system that's paid for itself, store it and do that cheaper than I can buy it in the network, then the market will take off. There's no doubt about it. Mm. Uh, cost of the technology have continued to fall. And in fact, I met with a supplier only on Monday who have a, a fantastic solution and it's somewhere around 15, 20% cheaper than what I've seen before. Mm. So it's it's well and truly starting to happen and it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Perversely, I sort of wish I was paying 52 cents because at the moment I'm paying about 30 cents peak and uh, if it was 52, it, it'd tip the scales. I'd go for the, uh, uh, the storage solution immediately instead of trying to hold off. In terms of economic levers and, and tools, we've seen feed-in tariffs and rebates as examples to improve market conditions for early adopters of residential solar panels. Is there an economic uh, lever that you prefer for early adopters for battery storage? Battery storage incentives are a really interesting one, and and I think I think the first thing that we should do as a country, and I and I've uh, talked about this with some of the regulators, is look around the world 
at other markets where they're in fact already doing this. So in Germany and Italy, they have very well-developed regulations and policy mechanisms that are uh, adjust over time and um, uh, are designed to match the cost of technology and reward consumers and, and networks in different ways. So I think the first rule of thumb is let's not reinvent the wheel where there are good policies around the world. Yep. What those policies need to look like in Australia, in our unique situation, however, is I, I don't exactly know yet because one thing is clear, if we, if we incentivise the products, we know there's a market, we know there's interest and we know consumers will go for it. So we'll certainly stimulate the market and we'll create jobs and revenue streams and reduce network demand. However, because of the complexities of the way our industry operates and because of the, uh, the network's concern about falling revenues and customers migrating away from the grid, there's a real challenge to actually get those policies and regulations right. So I don't know quite what the answer is yet. I would love to see financial support tailored. The, the, the simple version is that we could tailor financial support to network areas that are under the most stress. That would yep. be the most logical thing to do. And potentially for electricity consumers who are willing, as you say, to put themselves on a high electricity rate. And uh, so there's a variety of price and demand signals and network signals that all kind of need to be meshed together to get this right. However, you know, I, I really think that with a little bit of caution to make sure that we don't overheat the market, a, a, a simple cash rebate or a cash incentive to get the market going would be a great thing because what we need at the moment is, is scale and what we need is to really get the capital cost down to help kick things along and then that can be wound back as uh, as we get more sophisticated. We, the other issue that we have, and, and it's one of the reasons why we haven't been able to adapt some of the terrific German and other programs, is because we just don't have the population. We don't have the scale to manage and administer really complex schemes. Yeah. Uh, so we kind of have to take a bit of a, a bit of a crude approach to it, simply because we don't have the scale. But um, mm. uh, I'd love to see something come in uh, as we phase out support for solar and that's continuing to drop over time and as that continues to drop the next logical thing to do is to support storage. Thanks. From what you've seen around the world in those sort of schemes uh, or from your own personal preferences do you think there'd be a role for uh, households being rewarded for putting electricity back into the grid at, at times of peak demand? from battery storage? Yes, uh, that, that takes it to another level again, but ultimately that would be the kind of holy grail because that's how you can really deliver terrific value for networks mm. and, and being, being able to call up energy uh, on demand from millions of small battery systems and aggregate that together does give you the ability to actually put some meaningful energy back into the network and handle peaks in uh, network demand. And interestingly, there are several companies in Australia who've developed some world-class widgets and software that, in fact, allows you to do exactly that, to trade on the NEM millions of aggregated small systems. So there's a, there's a small pilot trial going on in the ACT with, with one of those companies now. and Another one was recently uh, part purchased by utility, so they're, they're playing with their technology. So I don't think it'll be long before that comes. We've got a bunch of regulatory stuff that we've got to get in place for that to happen. But I think we'll see more and more trials of that type of technology and, and, and pilot systems going on. And you know, the wonderful thing is the 
data acquisition and data management and the sophistication that we've got now in all the computer processing power really does enable us to do that cleverly, reliably mm-hmm. and very economically. So it's only a matter of time. Yep. So moving on to the um, battery technologies, I know this is a, a very rapidly moving, exciting feast, um, but you would probably have your finger on the pulse as much as anyone on this. The, the latest I heard of was the promise of carbon nanotube lithium batteries, which were 15 times the energy density storage and a two-minute charge or something. Can you just fill us in briefly on your reading of the battery technologies and where they're heading? Can you, can you pick a likely winner at the moment? Yeah, it's a, it's a really tricky one, but and I, I'm... I'm not an expert in every chemistry of every battery around the world, but I, but I do follow a fair bit and, and um, tend to agree with what I'm seeing from most of, most of the world's most informed analysts, and, and, and that is this. Lithium batteries, and, and I'll stress, there are actually about 30, more than 30 different chemistries already of lithium-type batteries, and there's more being uh, played with every day in different different mixes of chemistries and as you mentioned the carbon nanotube and there was another one today that was an aluminium based product so there's going to be a a subtle evolution of different chemistries and different construction materials that improve the performance to suit different applications Uh, electric vehicles for example demand very high power density lightweight and and uh, high high levels of safety stationary uh, lithium batteries for Homes don't have those same requirements, but are, but are very similar, but will be biased in a slightly different way with a slightly different construction and chemistry. So I think we'll see a variety of different chemistries. But one thing that everyone pretty much unequivocally agrees in is that for the next five, perhaps even 10 years, lithium batteries are likely to dominate the space for two main reasons. One, it is in terms of its cost effectiveness and its performance levels and its relative safety, it, it is, it, it, it's there today and it's just going to keep getting better. And secondly, it's made in such scale and such volume already and that is ramping up so quickly because of the electric vehicle industry that that will tend to mean that even though, for example, electric vehicle battery may not be the ideal home stationary energy battery, if you can get it at a great price and it's made in a very, very high volume so it's reliable and high performance, then a small compromise in characteristics would be worthwhile because you're going to get it so much cheaper. So I think what we'll tend to see is electric vehicle batteries in slightly different forms, slightly different packages being used as home storage devices. And in fact, that's what I'm aiming to do with the, with the zero bikes is use that as a stationary, as, as a mobile energy <laughs> storage medium. For stationary feedback, yeah. So I think in the near term, the next five to ten years, everyone around the world that I read and follow is saying it's going to be lithium because of those capacity and manufacturing reasons. Beyond that, there are a swathe of different technologies. Flow batteries will get there one day. They've been around for a long time. And in the large market, they would appear to be a terrific solution where larger capacities are required and and, and megawatt-sized plants. And then I'm sure we'll see other technologies. Nigel? At the political yeah. level, do you predict the partisan divide shall continue to add uncertainty to renewable energy in Australia? Or do you predict Australian politicians and commentators may mature with renewable energy technology? Boy, uh, that's a big question. One thing I've seen over the last two decades is support for renewables is a bit like a pendulum. It swings either direction It's hard to predict why or when or for what reason it swings, but it does swing. And uh, uh, that's been a pretty consistent thing. So 
at the moment, we're about as far to the right as that pendulum could possibly swing. It really is. I saw our Prime Minister described as the world's greatest climate villain today for his policies on, amongst other things, renewable energy. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a sad, sad day mm-hmm. that we're in that position and, and our country is viewed, you know, not, not pulling its weight. The simple fact of the matter is that the rise of renewables is unstoppable. It is already an economic position in small-scale solar and in commercial applications today. You just you can beat residential and small business electricity rights with solar every day, hands down, pretty much all around Australia. In large-scale around the world, it's getting more and more competitive with wholesale energy costs, and that's just going to continue to get better. So, you know, the mix of renewable energy is going to increase because it makes financial sense. And wherever it makes financial sense around the world, you see the markets flocking to it, the investors flocking to it, and that drives the market. So we will see it. And eventually, when that logic sinks into those in power, provided, of course, they're not philosophically opposed for some other reason, then the the pendulum will swing back. I expect to see a renewed surge in support for renewables at some point in the coming years. I'm frankly pretty pessimistic about our current leadership uh, changing their opinion, so we may have to uh, wait for a change of government for that to happen. Yeah, I don't think you find much argument with that. So uh, that was a tough one. Another tough one for you. Community sentiment motivates behaviour. How should solar enthusiasts accelerate the transition to renewable energy sources against such an adversarial fossil fuel lobby? So I think that's fairly easy to do, notwithstanding the, uh, the realities of life. The, the, the first way to do it is to vote with your feet. And we're seeing that every day. Uh, even when rebates or feed-in tariffs are cut, the market, the number of consumers buying solo always reduces a bit, but it doesn't stop. It keeps going. And I remember talking to network companies saying, this is unfathomable to us. We've taken the rebate away and consumers are still buying. We don't get it. We, we never expected this to happen. So the greatest way to demonstrate the community's support and desire for solar is to vote with your feet and put it on your house. That is the number one thing you can do. The second thing you can do is you can join advocacy groups and community groups. There are a number of great organisations like BZE out there who are active in the community and are giving a voice to the millions of Australians. And whenever I meet with politicians, one of the key messages that I always take to them is there's something like 1.2, 1.3 million homes with solar on it in terms of voting age Australians. That means about 4 million odd Australians who wake up every day and can use the sunshine to run their homes. And that's about 25% of the voting population. And that is, interestingly, that is one of the most engaged, enthusiastic and largest blocks of voters that, that, that exists. It's, uh, it's nearly as many in terms of active participants and people who really love their technology and really love what solar does for them, they're more engaged in a lot of cases than the church or the unions or other very, very large lobby groups. So we have a huge amount of power in that. And the crucial issue is not only to vote with your feet, but also when when community groups call on owners to stand up and be counted and make their voices heard, as they have done very effectively in the past, it's really important that they stand up and, and come out and make a bit of noise so that the government understands what a hugely popular solution this is. Thank you. I must 
agree very strongly with you there. So back on these positive notes, you were talking about the exciting new technologies. I understood from a brief comment you made before we started that you're about to be engaged on a new pilot test scheme of, of a new storage. What can you tell us about that? Yes, well, I'm I'm, uh, I'm delighted and, and very fortunate to be one of a small number of pilot sites around the world that will be trialling a new storage product, in this case made by the microinverter company Encode. They've developed, using the same kind of architecture, they've developed a micro storage solution, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is uh, by using a micro solution, uh, you get the benefit of, of, of having a distributed solution. It becomes very modular. It has a built-in redundancy, so if one battery fails, you can pull it out and the rest of the system stays alive. You've got really good granular data coming in from the characteristics of different batteries, but you know, as a, as a user of that technology, all I'll simply see is the, you know, an aggregated amount of storage on my home. So uh, I, I've been lucky enough, because I happen to have a fair bit of data logging on my home already, I was lucky enough to get picked as a pilot site, so I've already got a small solar system on my home, which is on the growth feed in Tariff in New South Wales. Mm-hmm. And we'll actually be adding a second system alongside that, which will be on a net tariff, and uh, we'll have the storage connected to that. And we'll actually be facing that system west mm-hmm. uh, to generate more energy in the afternoon, yep. store it in the batteries. And my main objective actually will be to capture some of that westerly generation, not only offset my peak demand a bit more, but also capture and retain some of that energy so that when I arrive at home uh, in the evening on my electric bike, I can actually draw down on that energy that I've stored during the day and generated during the day to recharge my bike so it's, it's truly uh, solar generated. So, Nigel, thank you for that so much. Just briefly, we are out of time, but could you tell us about what's happening with the Solar 2015 and, and your exhibit there and the presentations you're doing around the place? Sure. Um, yeah, look, there's, there's a number of conferences coming up, but Solar 2015, which has got an energy storage conference running uh, alongside it, is coming up in, uh, in mid-May in, in Melbourne. I've got a, a couple of different presentations there, which I'll be giving and, and hopefully... We'll, we'll have a, a bike there as well. And then there's also another energy storage event coming up in, in June uh, in Sydney, which uh, I'll also be talking about and doing some workshops. And, and again, we'll have the bike there. And then uh, uh, there's another one happening in July uh, in Sydney where I'll be talking about storage as well. So I think I've got five or six different talks to give on where we're at and the trends that we're seeing with storage and electric vehicles coming up. So exciting, exciting times, lots to talk about, lots of interest. It is. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Nigel. Where can people find out more information about your company? Thanks for having me, uh, Michael, solarbusiness.com.au or if you're interested in the bikes, motoelectro.com.au.